Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Anna. Welcome to today's episode of the Mighty Littles Podcast. Today, I am sharing an interview that I did with Ebony. Ebony has one daughter, Rain, and she was born at 26 weeks. And in this podcast, we are going to talk about Rain's NICU stay, the complications that Rain has had since her NICU stay. And we're also going to dive a little bit into Ebony's journey with her pregnancy. Ebony has become a March of Dimes ambassador. And one of the faces of the It's Not Okay campaign for the March of Dimes, we know that in this country, there are disparities between maternal outcomes for white women and black women uh, that would extend to really all women of color. So Native American, Hispanic, the risk of maternal mortality is higher. The risk of adverse complications during pregnancy is higher in women of color. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and what some of the reasons behind it might be. This podcast is going to launch my September campaign of the Mini Mighty Littles. And at the end of this podcast, you will hear us talk a little bit about the edge of viability. How young can babies survive? And through the month of September, I'm going to be bringing you um, a bunch of podcasts that are really about that limit of viability. So I'll be talking about kind of the history of the limit of viability, where we stand now, what kind of the national practices are at this moment in time. And then I have interviews from four different moms who delivered at either 22 or 23 weeks. And I want to tell you a little bit about their experience and their journey and how their babies are doing now. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation that I have with Ebony. I really enjoyed talking to her and I appreciate the fact that she was willing to talk to me about some of these hard topics and conversations. It's not easy to talk about race in healthcare, and it's particularly not easy for me to talk about race in healthcare as a white neonatologist. But Ebony kind of uh, helped me out and gave me some wiggle room to ask some questions, and we really dive into that topic. So enjoy this podcast, and I look forward to having you guys back next week to start off our mini Mighty Littles uh, marathon for the month of September. Enjoy. Hi, Mighty Littles listeners. This is Anna, and I am here today with Ebony. Ebony is Rain's mom, and she is here to tell us not only the story of Rain, but also her story and her complications with her pregnancy and what she's done since leaving the NICU. Ebony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you here. Why don't we have you introduce yourself uh, to our listeners? Oh, my name is Ebony Ford. Um, I'm 33. I reside in the Washington, D.C. area, and um, I'm a wife um, of almost eight years, and I am a mom to an ex-26-weeker micropreemie named Rain Victoria. And how old is Rain now? Rain is now two. Two. And when is her birthday? Um, it's March 25th. So she just, she's a new two. Yeah. Yeah, she just, yeah, turned, she two. just turned two. Uh, I have to admit that probably my favorite age range is like 11 months 
to 30 months um, mm. when, when you talk about like parenting and it's that explosion of everything new that they do that I loved mm. so much. I find the infant part very difficult, um, which is funny because I'm a neonatologist, but that was not my favorite part of parenting. <laughs> I'm happy to take care of somebody else's baby. Um, but that first kind of four to six weeks for my own babies was very challenging for me. But I love oh. that age range that you're in right now. I think it's just the perfect age range. <laughs> That's so, interesting. I love the baby phase. That's the best for me. Really? You like the baby phase the most? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's my friend Amy. She could have, she was like, if all I had to do was take care of babies, I would have a million babies. But eventually those babies grow up and I have to take care of teenagers mm-hmm. and I want nothing to do with them. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we start off by having you summarize Rain's NICU stay. And then after we talk about her, then we'll kind of move into talking about some of the other stuff with you. Okay. So um, Rain was born at 26 weeks and five days, weighing one pound, 15 ounces. She was a very lengthy 15 and a half inches. Um, Her stay... Um, it's quite interesting, even from her being born, we were given expectations of, um, you know, all of the horrible statistics that can happen, uh, which we were, we were taking in stride, cerebral palsy, blindness, deafness, um, the chances of her having neck, brain bleeds, all of those things we were pretty prepared for. We were even prepared for her to have um, respiratory failure and um, a lot of lung things because unfortunately I didn't have much time as you'll find out soon to get any steroids or anything like that so um, within her first two days she had a lung collapse um, she was born breathing on her own but their protocol is to intubate I guess her APGAR was slightly off um, they have a standard I can't remember the exact numbers right now but um, basically she fell below. So it was their protocol to intubate her, even though she was breathing on her own, which is partially why we're dealing with bronchopulmonary dysplasia right now, which you'll hear about too. Um, but she was intubated. She was then taken off. They realized that she was breathing over the machine. So they took her off. She did well for about 20 hours and then her right lung collapsed. She got a chest tube. Two days later, her left lung collapsed. So she spent about five, about five days on different. She went from the jet to um, the standard vent. Um, she went through a, a series of those and they took her off. And she was on bubble CPAP for the next eight weeks. Um, our NICU is very, was very unique in the fact that they did not do um, low flow oxygen. It was bubble CPAP all the way until you're ready to get off. Um, which I believe contributes to our NICU's very high rate of, uh, well, very, I'm sorry, very low rates of having BPD, babies getting trach. Um, they would not allow her to bottle feed until she was off of CPAP, um, bubble CPAP, which was very unique also. Uh, it was frustrating for me as a parent watching other babies on Instagram with oxygen in their bottle feeding. And we literally had to wait until she was off for about, mm, I think maybe about a week and a half, maybe, before they would bottle feed her. Um, But she did great with her bottle feeding. Um, She did have reflux. So we had a few challenges with her positioning. Um, She was a belly baby. She still is a belly baby. She will not sleep on her back at all. 
Um, so we had to learn to do the opposite of everything we were taught. She didn't like to be swaddled. Um, when she came home, she just became a completely different baby. I would say from like 36 weeks on, um, every step of the NICU, Rain let us know when she was ready to move on. She was pulling tubes. She was, um, gnawing on her hands. She was, she pulled the tube out and then was gnawing on it. And I was at home watching on the video and I'm like, I know her monitors have to be going off right now. Why is nobody moving? So I called the nurse. I was like, hey, I'm on my way up there, but is Rain okay? Because I'm watching her chew on her tube. And she's like, yeah, the screen says her set is 100. I said, um, okay, her tube is out. She was like, that can't be right. I said, go look. She went over. Lo and behold, her tube was out. The next day, she trod off of oxygen. Um, she pulled her, she had a G and a J tube at one point, pulled one out, put it back in. She pulled it out. They said, okay, let's leave it out. See how she does. Maybe a week later, she pulled the other one out. So every, every step, she just kind of let us know, um, when she was ready and it was just a beautiful thing to watch. So her NICU journey was 80 days and she came home without oxygen, nothing but a multivitamin on deck. Um, she did have retinopathy, um, which resolved over our stay, which needed no surgery. Um, we only had one follow-up appointment for that. No appointments to see pulmonologists, neonatologists, none of the assort. She came home in our eyes completely perfect. Um, so when I look at the stays of her peers, the fact that she came home at 38 weeks was incredible. We were expected just not to expect it at all. No medication, no oxygen. It was beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like overall, aside from that very initial um, lung collapse, which it, I'm not saying that's not scary. It certainly is. But it's not uncommon with 26-week babies either. It sounds like aside from that, it was a pretty uncomplicated uh, NICU stay for her. And how's she doing now? Now, um, she's looking up. You'll learn about what we've experienced since then. And it looks like we are back on the path to all things being well. It looks like we are on in our last little stint of prematurity related complications. Um, hers started a little later than most. Uh, most babies leave the NICU with things happening. They hit much later for us. So... Um, but yeah, she's been doing really well in the midst of a pandemic, which is incredible because we were expecting one thing and she's just completely shocked us. Yeah, it's crazy. Babies always tell us what they need and the same is true as they get older. They kind of, I feel like kids do a really good job of telling us what they need. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're just listening to them and watching their cues, they tell you exactly what they need. Absolutely. So why don't we go back a little bit to your pregnancy and, okay. um, you know, I know, I know why you delivered at 26 weeks, but I wanted to kind of summarize rain stay first. And now I kind of want to focus on you and what happened around her delivery and your health after she delivered, because I think there's a really important story to tell there. Okay, so um, Rain was a rainbow baby. Uh, we did suffer uh, four losses before her um, to include a set of 22-weeker twin boys. 
um, from twin to twin transfusion. That was the closest um, that we got to a viable pregnancy, um, which was heart- obviously heartbreaking. After that, my husband and I were like, that's it. We're just going to live life and we're just going to travel. I went back to school. I got my bachelor's degree. Um, I started studying studying clinical psychology, which was my dream. Um, And we just focused on us. Uh, My husband is a gospel recording artist. He began to record his music, traveled. And um, in the midst of us doing us, a few days before, um, actually about two weeks before our fifth wedding anniversary, this idea of adoption came back to me and I, I always wanted a family. I, I was really kidding myself and saying, Oh, we're done. I don't want any kids, but I, I think that's really a heavily... defense. I think, I feel like that's a defense mechanism, that's exactly right? That's exactly what it is. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you had four losses and man, 22 weeks, you're so close and mm-hmm. twins. And I mean, that's just, it's I, like, I have goosebumps. It's heartbreaking and devastating. And I feel like, the idea of moving back forward can be so hard and so painful and so scary that we tell ourselves, no, I'm good. I don't want this. Even though we do because of those really deep, deep emotions that, that pain and that scarring that comes from those experiences. So yeah, we wanted it. I wanted it so bad. And if I wanted anything, I knew I wanted to do psychology. I knew I wanted to be a mom. That's all I wanted and to be a wife. Um, and I wanted it in that order. Um, but when life didn't quite happen the way we expected, I said, okay, well maybe it's not meant. So let's move on. Um, and it felt like in every situation, I didn't really have clear and well, the twins gave us clear answers. They, it was a very severe case of twin to twin transfusion that was inoperable. Um, but we still held on to hope. Unfortunately, things didn't turn out the way that we would have liked. And I think that was the final straw. So we went on about our business. Adoption came back up. Um, and I began to look into it and study into it. And I actually set up a meeting um, with an adoption lawyer. It was going to be about two days before our fifth wedding anniversary, which for us was huge. Uh, five years of marriage. We got married at 25. Everybody was like, you guys are too young. You're not going to make it. And we're like, boom, we hit five years. Like, this is awesome. So it was a big celebration for us. And earlier in that week, I began to get extremely tired. I was weak. I could barely stay awake. I was having all kinds of weird stomach pains. I didn't really know what was going on with me. Um, I am. Um, I was diagnosed with lupus about six years ago. So um, I know when flares are coming, they kind of manifest different ways. But this was totally different from anything I had ever experienced. And I was like, I don't know what this is. And when I started telling my husband, he was like, mm, think you could be pregnant? And I was like, no, of course not. At this time, it had been two years um, of infertility. We couldn't get pregnant at all. Whereas before, we would get pregnant fairly easy. And now nothing was happening. Um, I did go get some testing done. They could not find any reason. It was just, you know, an, an unexplained infertility. We took it as that and, you know, kept moving. So I'm like, no, not pregnant. Nope. All my other symptoms, I, my, all my other pregnancies, I found out much later. Um, you know, like the six-week range. I never kind of, like, knew right away. Um, and just because of the way the timing of the month worked, I knew, like, 
I'm not pregnant. I can't be pregnant. I no. I wouldn't have symptoms this early. And he's like, okay. And then two days go by, and he's like, so are we going to buy it a take a test or what are we going to do and I was like no I'm not like stop pressing it stop pressing it and then finally he broke me down and I said okay I think I had like two or three in the back 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 of my um bathroom cabinet and I was like let me dust these things off all right I'm just gonna do this for his sake part of me felt like maybe I was just it was like a painful ovulation so I took out an ovulation test and the pregnancy test. I was like, I'm going to dip them both, but I know it's probably going to be this ovulation test. Set, dipped them both. The ovulation test lit up right away. I was like, okay, I am ovulating, but let me dip this other one. Dipped it, set it on the sink, stood up, and as I looked down, it moved across the line, and the line was darker than the test. And I'm like, wait a minute this is weird how do you have a positive ovulation and a positive pregnancy i grabbed the other pregnancy test pulled it out same thing happened i called him screaming on the phone like oh my god oh my god you did the okay look 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 and then i took the camera and showed him and he was like i know it i know it he was like i, I told you <laughs> yeah he just kept saying it i told you i told you i told you so i'm like whoa but then I got scared because I'm like, well, why am I in so much pain? I had so much pain, like, in my lower pelvic area. So, of course, having experience with losses, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, God, it's ectopic. Oh, God. You know, I'm thinking the worst. So we go to the emergency room that night because the pain got that bad. And um, they couldn't find a reason at all. My numbers were great, um, but they couldn't see anything on the screen, no sack or anything. So they're like, either you're really early um, because the blood numbers didn't match. I guess where my ACG was, they should have seen a sack at that point. So she's like, I don't know if you're very early with multiples, if you've already had a loss. She's like, I'm not sure. Come back in a week. We'll get your numbers again and we'll see. So we can't, no, they actually had us come back in two days the first time, the night of our anniversary, the day we were supposed to meet with an adoption lawyer. We're confirming our pregnancy. Timing was amazing. Um, came back and then they saw a sack. Nothing in the sack, but a sack. So then we had another appointment uh, with our actual OB, saw a sack, very little bean in there. So we found out that basically we had ovulated two weeks after. So we were thinking we were like five weeks and some days and we were really just like three. So my pregnancy symptoms hit like, if, if anyone's ever tried to conceive, you know, like nine DPO, 10 DPO, I'm sorry, days post ovulation is very early. That's how soon I got symptoms. Unheard of for me to be experiencing symptoms that early. So it was almost like God's way of saying, hmm, told you. Um, so I knew right off the bat. And after that, my pregnancy was beautiful. No morning sickness. Um, that tiredness went away. I got the burst of energy back. Uh, because of our history, we were very cautious. So um, I was home all the time. I didn't do much. I didn't do anything strenuous. Um, my husband was not having it. Um, he was getting me anything I wanted, everything I wanted. All of my appointments were great. Blood pressure, great. Um, I did have to see a high risk doctor because of my history of losses, um, as well as lupus. So everything was great. I was doing like urine protein and blood tests every single appointment. I was getting ultrasounds every single appointment, which I was not complaining about. Um, I have so many prints. It's crazy. Um, so, I mean, everything was beautiful. Um, 24 weeks, my husband had a trip coming up um, to Las Vegas and I wanted to go. 
Um, it's a big deal for him. Um, it's an award show that happens out in Las Vegas. And so we go to our appointment and I, you know, ask my doctor, is it okay if I go? This particular day, my doctor was not in the office. She had an emergency. So I saw one of her coworkers and he kind of flipped through my chart. It was really fast. He just kind of talked over our losses a bit. He sent in a medical student to listen for the heart rate. I had to tell her that what she was listening to was my heart rate. I knew the difference that she didn't. Feel a pulse, feel that. It's the same thing. Um, so that was my first warning, like something is off. So then he came in and, you know, I had a little bit of a puffiness in my ankles. And I was like, hey, my ankles are a little puffy. You know, this hasn't normally been the case. Took my blood pressure and it was, normally my blood pressure's in like the 120s over like 160. My blood pressure's always been amazing. This particular day it was like 140 something over 80 something. He's like, well, this is borderline hypertension, but it's nothing, nothing crazy. It's kind of to be expected um, with where you are in your pregnancy with your weight. I'm not too surprised. And um, on the way out, they normally hand me a slip to go get my blood work and things like that. And this particular day, there wasn't one in there. So I was like, hey, um, I'm missing the blood work. So he was like, everything's been fine. There's no need to do your blood work and stuff today. You're fine. You know, uh, make sure on the plane, make sure you keep taking your aspirin. They had me taking aspirin to prevent preeclampsia, the awkwardness. Um, so he had me double it up, um, double up the baby aspirin for this trip. I did just that. Packed up, left, went on the trip. And the night that we landed, felt fine. Woke up the next day um really tired my ankles were much larger my hands were swollen and i noticed that i was slightly out of breath as that day progressed uh the the me being out of breath like really intensified like i couldn't take like five or six steps without having to stop and like really gather myself if i walked too fast i was almost like hyperventilating to catch my breath and I wrote, um, there's a little terminal that our, doc that our hospital has where you can, you know, chat with your doctor. And I sent her a chat and just said, hey, I came in and I saw this doctor and I told her my ankles were swelling. You know, take a look at my chart. Now I'm here in Las Vegas and this is going on, blah, 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 blah. About eight hours later, she hit me back and she was like, are you near um, an urgent care or hospital? There was one like two blocks down the street. And she said, if you're really concerned... You know, you can always go down there, get your blood pressure taken. That'll kind of tell us, you know, where you are. Let them go see you. But something in my gut said, don't do it. And I'm like, why do I feel this way? That's That doesn't make sense. I'm not feeling well. Why would I not go to the hospital? But something in my, my gut just said, don't go, don't go, don't go. So I messaged her back and I was like, hey, I don't think I want to do that. We're going to be coming home. We're going to wrap this up. Um, Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be home give me like till tomorrow evening I'm coming home she said okay I will be on call so when you get there they'll call me I'll come we get our flight we get on our flight and our flight was like the last straw for me that broke the camel's back first of all I had to get a wheelchair because I couldn't walk through the airport I was so winded and so tired I was like seeing stars if I moved too fast I was just very unwell and I knew it now, in my mind, I thought maybe I had gotten um, a blood clot on the flight. That's what I was thinking, because I, I know those are kind of common, your legs or, you know, your lung or whatever. Um, so I was terrified, but I, you could have never told me what was actually happening was happening. So by the time we arrived back to Washington, D.C., 
my vision was black and white. I woke up from a nap to black and white vision. My shoes, I had on some little flat shoes I had to buy in Las Vegas. I had to buy like two size bigger shoes because I could no longer fit my shoes. The seams in those shoes were bursting. That's how swollen my feet were. I couldn't get my ring off. My ring finger was actually like a little numb and kind of cold. And I was like, okay, this is off. We went and dropped our luggage off at home, went to the hospital. I went up to L&D, which is what I was always told to do. And um, this is where the March of Dimes, it's not fine part kind of comes in. Um, I sat down, they had me fill out all this paperwork, despite me telling this lady, look, this, this, like, I really need to get seen. So, sit right here, fill this out, fill it out. The, the lady walks off for about 10, 15 minutes, and then she comes back. Takes my paper back, works to a nurse. Nurse comes out maybe five minutes later, takes me in this little area. She's asking me what's going on. I'm like, look, my chest hurts. By this time, I've had abdominal pain. I'm like, I just realized I have not urinated in well over a day. I've barely eaten the last day. Um, this is going on. This is swelling, blah, 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 blah. So she's like, hmm, okay, have you felt the baby moving? I'm like, yeah, she's very active. She's like, when's the last time you felt her move? I said, as I was walking in here with you. She said, okay, all right. Um, I'm sure everything's fine, but let's get you down to the emergency room because this isn't necessarily like a pregnancy baby. It's a pregnancy issue, obviously, but there could be something else happening. So we just need to get you down. Never took my blood pressure, never monitored the baby or anything while we were there. I waited for a wheelchair escort for about another 15 minutes. So this is like well beyond 30 minutes. I'm still sitting here. Nothing's getting done. Nothing's happening. They wheel me down to the emergency room. Um, the triage nurse had someone there. So I was waiting for them to clear out. They wheel me up. I tell her what's going on. She puts the cuff on. I fill the cuff up. She's asking me all these questions. And I heard the machine go off. And she looked at the screen. And she was like, that can't be right she was like let me do your other arm did it and when the machine stopped she was like okay things are about to speed up a little bit um i don't want you to be alarmed but um you're sick and she just turned around and she hit a button on the wall and all of about 10 people came out rushed out to the front um they actually, actually lifted me up out of the wheelchair, put me on a gurney, and ran me down the hall. As they running me in the room, I heard someone say, uh, what was the BP again? I, I couldn't remember it then, but because I have my medical records, I now know that it said 262 over 147, over 146. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Um, heart rate was 220. Um, they rolled me in the back. They start ripping clothes off. They call the x-ray. And I heard them say brain attack. Brain attack in room dot, 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 dot. Last name Ford. So I'm like, brain attack? What is a brain attack? What is, what is that? I'm not here for a brain attack. And I, the doctor started explaining, you know, what that means. Just because my pressure was so high, they didn't know if I was having a stroke or what was happening. Um, so long story short, within the first 30 minutes, um, we pretty much knew I had preeclampsia. They were pushing all kinds of blood pressure medicines just to, even before they knew, just to try to get my blood pressure down. Um, my Not my doctor, but a different OB came down to see me. They did get the monitor on the baby. Baby was moving just fine. She was great. 
Um, and he came in the room and he said, look, I'm going to be straight with you. You have preeclampsia. You're not leaving this hospital today. I can keep you pregnant till about 32 weeks. But after that, I don't think I don't I don't think you're going to be able to hold off anymore. So let me tell you what it looks like to have a 32 weeker. And then his phone rang. And he's like, let me I'll be right back. He stepped out. Um, the ER doctor came in and asked me some more questions about the, the timeline of events. He came back in the room with three other people. And he said, okay, forget what I just said. You're having your baby today. And I was like, what do you mean I'm having my baby today? He said, I just got your x-ray films back. I just got these other tests back. And he said, you are full of fluid. Um, I... There's no way that you're going to be able to survive another night. We're pushing. I had like two bags of magnesium running. He's like, this stuff is not touching your blood pressure. Um, I had fluid around my heart. I had fluid all around my lungs. Um, And I think it was my liver enzymes that came back that really sealed the deal for him. Um, He said that my liver enzymes were about seven times what they should have been. And that's when he explained to me that I was basically in liver and kidney failure. Um, at that time they started pumping me with what I now know as Lasix, um, and put a catheter in and it seemed like every five minutes they were just pulling these big, um, it's like the bed pans, I guess they were using to drain the bag, but they were taking full ones every few minutes. Like my body was just flushing all of that stuff out. Um, the pain in my abdomen got worse. Um, it was just nagging, horrible. I mean, like fetal position pain um and he explained to me that was the help syndrome he explained that my something was going on with my platelets he was throwing all this information at me meanwhile they're rushing me and my husband back upstairs to D, where the same nurse that basically ignored my symptoms had to take care of me and when she saw my face again and realized that I was a patient that she turned away she was like Oh my God, I just saw her earlier. I heard her telling the other nurse, she was like, Oh my God, if I didn't know this was going on, I'd have hurried up. I'd have got her back here. She's like, it's, it's okay. She's here now. Let's take care of her. So I went from a nasal cannula to the non-breather mask to the BiPAP mask. That's how bad I was breathing at this point. So they came in, um, basically explained what was going to happen. Someone from a NICU team came in and gave me all those horrible statistics that we, we talked about, um, and explain what her state would look like um, very briefly. I don't really think she touched it as much as I would have wished, um, but it, she kind of she kind of breathed through it. Um, my husband's calling everybody that we can call. My family's like an hour and a half away. He has a few family members here. We're calling friends just to let them know baby's coming. Anesthesiologist comes in and they had me sign the consent. And he explained to me that my husband would not be able to be in the room with me because I was going under general anesthesia. I was going to be intubated and I would probably spend the next 24 to 48 hours in the ICU um, because of what I now know to be health syndrome. But they just said kidney and liver failure, basically. Um, At that time, they had papers to be signed um, for consent for transplant if it was needed they had never the doctor said he had never seen a case this severe like sudden onset um they'd never seen it and they especially never seen it this early um within a pregnancy so they just weren't sure what was going to happen again my blood pressure was not responding to 
anything. Um, and they basically maxed me out on um, like Cardizem and Betalol and all of these other meds just maxed out. They were like, we don't know what to do. So team comes in, they take me down. I say goodbye to my husband. I'm a crying wreck at this point because I'm like, I never thought I'd be doing this by myself. I'm not going to get to see my baby be born. You're telling me I'm basically going to be knocked out somewhere with a tube down my throat for the next two days. Like, so in my mind, I never doubted if rain would be okay. I knew rain was going to be fine. I, on the other hand, was just like, I'm not going to make it. That's all I kept saying is I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. He's going to be raising her by himself. How's he going to do this? What's going to happen? And as they were laying me down on the table, I already couldn't breathe. So they laying me flat. And they're putting the other mask over my face. And there was a nurse. And she was just kind of talking to my ear. And she's like, it's going to be okay. And the last thing I remember is hearing the team do like their little time, their little timeout. Mm-hmm. Explaining what's getting ready to happen. And then that was it. Um, I woke up the next day. Um, intubated. Arms and legs strapped to the bed. Because apparently I fought like crazy overnight um, while I was supposed to be out of it. Um, I looked up at the clock and realized it was about noon. Um, and a team came in a few minutes later. Um, they were just walking around. Mind you, I can't talk. My arms are tied. I'm trying to, like, get their attention, like, get get this off of me. Like, get this off of me. Um, so they eventually came over and they were like, are you ready to get the tube out? And I'm like, let's get this out. So they pulled the tube out and basically explained what had been happening to me overnight. Um, basically, they fought really hard um, to get me out of the kidney failure, the liver failure. My liver numbers were currently looking better. They were still having issues controlling my blood pressure. Um, so I would probably still be there um, the time that they told me about. I'm asking about my baby. Nobody had answers, um, which was very alarming to me because the first thing I thought is, oh, God, did she not make it? Why don't they know? Why aren't they telling me? Sometime later, my husband comes in the room and he's able to tell me, you know, how she's doing. He showed me her picture. And I'm just like, oh, gosh, she made it. And he's like, babe, she's down there kicking. She's like, she is a feisty fighting thing. Like, I can't wait for you to see her. So I left the ICU um, about midnight that night. They took me down to L&D. And about an hour or so later, um, I was able to meet her. And what did you think the first time you saw her? How is a baby this small alive? How is a baby this small doing all this kicking and, and moving? And, like, I just never seen a baby so small. Even the picture that he took of her, she looked bigger in the picture, I guess because it was a, a zoomed up picture. It did no justice for how tiny she was. I'm talking wedding band fit up to her shoulder tiny. Like, I was just like, how in the world? But I knew she was fine just from one, how strong she was um, when she grabbed my finger. But the kicking she was doing, and I was just like, man. This girl is spicy. One of the nurses um, who apparently was in the C-section, she was like, I got to see her before we put everything on her. She's gorgeous. She's feisty. Um, She started to explain how when they were trying to intubate her, even then she like wrapped her hand around the cord and was like trying to pull it. And apparently she had done the same over the past few hours. So, um, but I just couldn't believe that 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 is what came out of me this strong little fighter was in there the whole time um and doing fine you know while i was sick and suffering 
Yeah, it's always crazy to me. Um, babies are born with the personality that they have, mm-hmm. and they come out with it. So, yeah, I mean, you can tell even in the delivery room with a preterm baby, oh, this is going to be one of those laid back babies or you know, and, and they become these kind of laid back kids, go with the flow. Yeah, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. I'm content. No big deal. You have kids that come out super opinionated and want to fight you on everything you do. And they stay that way. Mm-hmm. I always say having feisty babies um, is going to serve them well in the long run. And mm-hmm. it's going to make parenting toddlers and teenagers really, really hard. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, that gives them this drive. And the same is true for laid back kids too, right? Like they kind of just go with the flow and they take the missteps in stride and it it makes them better in the long run as well. It's, but I really do believe that babies are born with the personality that they keep for life. Yeah, absolutely. And that is proven to be true. Um, Feisty, she's feisty in all the right ways. Um, she's a fighter, but she's a sweetheart. She's so affectionate, and we saw her being really affectionate in the NICU too. So she's she's definitely that, and it proved that her name um, her name was very spiritual um, and meaningful for us. But it it just proved that we named her right. Watching her fight through all of that. So why did you name her Rain? Where did that come from? So um, my husband and I both are um, Christian ministers. And while we were going through our infertility journey, there's a um, scripture, it's in 2 Timothy 2 and 12. And it basically says, if you suffer with him, you'll reign with him. And that scripture just always stuck out to me. Like on the other side of suffering, there's a triumph, there's a victory after this. Um, And I held on to that. I thought it was coming through adoption, but apparently it was coming through this miracle baby. Um, my husband's initials are R and V. So we knew he wanted to keep that. So rain stuck out. I was like, okay, all right, we got the rain. I didn't know if I wanted to spell it like that, or there's some other like cute spellings of rain, but I wanted something unique. So I stuck with that rain. I'd never seen it. And his sister's name happens to be Victoria. So it was easy. I was like, okay, rain, Victoria. Oh, that sounds great. Okay. Rain, Victoria, rain, Victoria. Um, and obviously Victoria victory triumph. So she literally has like a a double whammy of a victory name. So, um, the whole time everybody just kept saying, Oh, she's raining. All right. Oh, she's raining over this journey. She's raining. And there's a song. Um, it's the hallelujah chorus. There's a line in it that says, and he shall reign forever and ever. Yeah. There came in her IG name. Okay. Oh, that's just awesome. Uh, my, I grew up uh, going to a Southern Baptist church in North Carolina, and we always sang the Hallelujah Chorus every year um, for one of the services. Um, so, like, you say that, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds exactly like this. Like, I can sing the whole song. So, mm-hmm. so how long did you end up being in the hospital total? Um, six days. And then... Did you have to go home on blood pressure medicine? I went home on blood pressure medicine. Um, and then, let me see, I came home on a Friday. A week later, I had an incision check. And I ended up being readmitted for another four days because my blood pressure was out of control. So uh, technically, a total of 10 days um, being admitted. And then what about now? Have you had any long-standing 
complications from that high blood pressure prematurity help syndrome? How did things go after you went home? Because I would say that preeclampsia um, and help syndrome are one of the most common reasons that babies are born prematurely. You know, incompetent cervix and infection kind of round out that list. But we have a lot of moms where everything's going fine and then they get preeclamptic and the baby comes and baby's born early. And I'm always curious what happens after that because I don't see them after the first two months where they're still kind of dealing with the complications of that preeclampsia. So how did things go after you left? So I remained on blood pressure medicine for about six months. Um, because I have lupus, um, they were just watching very closely. Um, my, um, liver enzymes went down to a borderline state, but they never really got better. So I was constantly getting blood draws for that. Um, also for my kidneys, I was able to get off the blood pressure medicine. Um, and then a few months later, I started having really bad migraines and found out my blood pressure was elevated again. Um, so because I wasn't checking my pressure in that period, I don't really know um, if my blood pressure just never truly went all the way down um, <clears throat> or if it only improved for a short time. Um, but now my blood pressure is great now. Um, I have had some um, kidney issues as of recently, um, but again, it's kind of hard to, um, my rheumatologist thinks that I was predisposed, obviously because of having the severe case of health that I had. Um, but we're hopeful that that will round itself out and resolve itself. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really difficult getting back to baseline. I didn't have any, like my pregnancy basically mm -hmm. put me in remission uh, with my lupus. None of all of the joint pain, all of the butterfly rash, all of that went away. And then about eight weeks postpartum, the symptoms kind of started creeping back in. I was like, Man, I thought I beat this. Right? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. There, it's got to be hormone related in some way. That said, mm -hmm. I, I'm not an adult doctor, nor am I a rheumatologist, so I have no idea. But yeah, you're correct. You're correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk a little bit with you about um, pregnancy outcomes in the United States when it comes to black moms and mm -hmm. feel free to correct me because uh, clearly I'm a white neonatologist and in all honesty I, I don't know am I supposed to say African-American am I supposed to say black am I supposed to say brown what yeah, am I supposed fine. to say so I'm kind of like I don't want to offend anybody but um you know there there's data out there that shows that black moms are more likely to have adverse outcomes from a maternal mortality standpoint. So we're just mm -hmm. talking about young black moms that are dying after delivery mm. and why that is. And there's so much discussion about it. And part of it is this notion of being ignored and having the symptoms downplayed. So gosh, when you're telling your story, you're two sizes of shoes up. You can't walk more than five steps. You were active and healthy prior to your pregnancy. Um, you're short of breath and you have vision changes that make your vision black and white. Oh, and you're pregnant. Like to me, that is eclampsia, preeclampsia help until proven otherwise. So where do you think the disconnect was 
in what your symptoms were and what you were describing and what the healthcare team was hearing or not hearing. Why, why is there that disconnect? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do, um, because this wasn't my first time experiencing something like this. Um, I have found it to be true, and I've spoken to many other um, Black moms who have said the same, that African-American women, Black women, are not believed when we say we are in pain, when we say something's not right, when we say, you know, I don't think this is the best option. It's automatically presumed that we don't know what we're talking about. Um, and I, I don't know why that is, but it's almost as if we're treated almost as if we are magnifying the symptoms to, um, I guess, make the outcome what we wish it to be. Like even in me finding out I had lupus, it took almost two years um, to get the diagnosis. This is two years in and out of emergency rooms with killer joint pain that would not be touched by anything. This is me at 10 out of 10 pain and the doctor just saying, oh, I'll give you some sort of, I'll send you home. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is terrible. It got to the point where I found out that one hospital had actually labeled me as drug seeking. Mind you, I was going in saying, I think I need steroids. I think I like some, something is up. Like, can you please get me out of this misery? They scanned my whole body. You can see the joint damage on my film. This is not just me saying it. You can see it. This is me having heart issues. This is me getting admitted. I was getting admitted just about every month for a year. You have full, I mean, you can see what's going on in my body. You have all these films, all this history. And they still labeled me as drug seeking just because I said I'm in pain or because I had so many visits. They sent a psych, a psych consult to my room. Mind you, I was in the hospital for pleurisy, pain. It hurts to breathe. I'm, ba I'm barely breathing without crying. And they sent a psych consult. Why? Because I've had so many admissions because you guys don't know what's wrong with me. You guys can't, you can't figure it out. Um, but they labeled me as drug seeking and I was just so hurt and so offended. I never went back to that hospital. I changed my care providers. And that's when the equation was because fi finally the butterfly rash appeared. And then it was like, oh, okay. So then they ran some tests and lo and behold, we, we figured out what was going on. Um, but even that doctor had to apologize. She's like, I'm not going to lie. When I got your records. These are the records of someone who shows up to the emergency room every two weeks because they want Percocet or Vicodin. Or, that's the way they're describing you in these records. And she's like, I've been seeing you for two months and you've never asked me for pain medicine. I've been begging you to take pain medicine. Why is that? Gosh, I don't, I don't really know what to say about it, right? Because there's obviously a disconnect and it's almost as if... Uh, black women are presumed to be histrionic, right? That's that describing factor of we're going to make everything overly dramatic. And by making it overly dramatic, there's some gain to that. I don't know what that gain is. And I'm not saying that you are histrionic and overly dramatic. I'm saying there seems to be this 
underlying current of labels that happen that prevent people from getting the care that they need or delay them to get the care that they need. And I'm curious how you think we can break those barriers down, right? I think that there's a lot more movement in the Black Lives Matter right now since COVID, since the things in Minneapolis. You've got more people protesting. You, It's not just Black people protesting. It's not just city people protesting. There's white people. There's young people. There's old people. There's Black people. There's brown people. Like I feel like there's more momentum in that, mm-hmm. which is good. I fear that it's going to stall and that we won't have as much change as needs to happen, happen. And I sure would like to kind of ride the coattails of that a little bit when it comes to pregnancy outcomes in the United States with black women and women of color. It's not okay for those outcomes to be different. It's not okay for physicians to ignore Serena Williams when she says I'm short of breath. Yeah. You have to like, it's un- it's unfathomable to me, really. Um, and I don't know if it's an education thing, if it's more rooted in kind of this cultural racism that has to be erased f- over time and through generations. Um, but I'm interested in hearing how you think we can try to bridge that gap from provider to patient And at the same time, what have you learned through your experience in terms of advocating for yourself and advocating for the care that you think you need? Because you've had to do that now through both the lupus diagnosis and through the pregnancy eclampsia where, you know, people didn't quite believe what was happening when it was first happening. Mm -hmm. So first, I think what we need to do is to listen when anybody black brown green says i'm in pain says something's not right says i I need something different or i don't think this is the best option i think it's a huge mistake to believe that the person in the body doesn't know the body i don't understand why anyone would not listen when someone's telling you what's happening with what they perceive to be happening with their body. Well, Um, and it's interesting you use that word perceived because when you talk to pain specialists, so people who do deal with kind of the chronic pain, fibromyalgia, um, um, adults with sickle cell who have mm -hmm. chronic pain. I see one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, though they, they talk about how it doesn't matter whether you are or are not in pain. What matters is that you perceive that you are in pain. And by perceiving that you are in pain, you are actually in pain. And it doesn't matter whether I, as a physician, can find the nail that's in your heel that's causing you pain, or if I do a complete exam and workup and I can't find anything that's causing you pain, it doesn't matter what I find. You are still in pain and we need to trust you and we need okay. to trust your story that you're telling me what is actually happening. So I just thought it was interesting when you said that word, word perceived. It took me right back to all those talks that I had had with that physician about that topic. Yeah. And I mean, it's often it's not even 
if you take the time to look, and I think that's the other part I was going to say, we don't take the time to look for the signs and the symptoms to back up what we're saying. Now, in my case, I had all the symptoms that screened lupus, all the symptoms that screened preeclampsia. So really, it was just a matter of not listening. But there are also subtle things. Like when someone is pain in pain, they guard that area. They guard it. There are little things you can do to find out th those simple responses. There are things that you can do to really investigate and get to the core of the matter. And just talking to someone, listening to their story, um, which my pain management doctor is awesome with that. There... I just don't understand how anyone could ever be so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Indifferent to another human being's suffering. You don't get to decide if someone is suffering. It's not your call. There's, there's no way that you could ever be in their body and say, mm, nope, your mind's not saying you're suffering. Nope, so you're not suffering. You have to believe them when they say they're suffering. There, there is a real um, bias towards African-American people, period. But since we're speaking on women, we are perceived as difficult. We are perceived as... Um, we have terrible attitudes. We um, we always have to be defiant. Um, there's just a, a, a mentality that I think has been passed from generation to generation, not just in family, but in medicine, that this is what you look for in a, a, a drug seeker. This is what you look for in someone who just wants attention or we, we train we train people to ignore suffering and um it's killing us it's killing us i cannot tell you how many moms i know who have been in my situation i know white moms who have had preeclampsia and help and when i listen to their stories how easily it was caught um when i listen to the care that they got and and i tell my story they're like so 30 minutes went by and you still didn't have any answers or well why didn't they try this or why didn't they try that and I have no answer but to say mm, they didn't believe me yeah or this one nurse I should say I won't say the whole healthcare team but this one nurse stalled my process because she didn't believe me and my that's got to be infuriating it at the time I, I couldn't really respond. I think I was already so like, Oh God, what is happening to me? But it hit me. It hit me the next day while I was in the ICU. Like, man, that time was precious. That 30 minutes was precious. Who knows if that encounter of me just sitting there was the final straw that put my blood pressure over stroke level. What would have happened if I'd have passed out on the floor and had a seizure in L&D? Then what would have happened? Then would she have believed, oh, God, something's wrong with her? Why did the blood pressure cuff never make it onto my arm? That's something simple. While we're sitting there talking, she should have been taking my vitals. Yeah, Why I'm... did she feel the need to talk to me and, and question me before she did something as simple as take my vitals? 
Well, you have a mom that comes up that's pregnant who has really bad swelling and vision changes and had some elevated blood pressure two days earlier. Yeah, checking a blood pressure would kind of be the first place to start. And the treatment for preeclampsia and eclampsia and HELP syndrome, they're, they're really like all of the things that we do mitigate to try to reduce reduce risks of complications from it. But the treatment is to deliver the baby. Um, mm-hmm. You have to get the baby out. That's not something that we're going to do in the ER. That's something that's done on labor and delivery. Right. Yeah. Which is why I thought it was interesting. Um, and I, I get it, you know, hearing chest pain and abdominal pain, hearing that you're thinking, okay, these are symptoms that, you know, it could be something else going on. But the fact that I'm swelling and I'm telling you I can't see, to me, preeclampsia just pops right out. And on the L&D floor, I think it would pop right out. Now, if she would have said to me, okay, well, we're going to get you, you know, settled in, da, 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 but you need to be taken to the emergency room for them to do these tests or that test, I could have taken that. But her demeanor was basically like, mm, you're in the wrong place. So let's take it. They'll, if something's wrong, they'll find it. If something's wrong? What do you mean if something's wrong? Are you not looking at me? Because I'm looking at me. Do you see my finger that's almost purple? Do you see my feet? I actually have pictures that I think I actually shared it. Um, They're on my website, but I've shared it with a few blogs. A picture of me the day before I came home from Las Vegas. And you can see my feet puffed out of my shoes. You can see my swelling hands. You can see my puffy face. It is clear as day that I am literally a blimp. Yeah. You can see it. It's, it. It wasn't rocket science. Given what you've been through, how do you now approach physician visits or visits with any healthcare provider um, that you think makes them listen to you more? Or do you still feel like you are not listened to? I have an amazing team. So I definitely feel heard. I definitely feel listened to. Um, but that came with a lot of trial and error that came with, um, an interesting thing is I don't have any African-American providers and I don't think it's necessary, um, to, I mean, for some people, they may feel like, you know, someone of my ethnicity may hear me is sad that we have to go to that length. Um, but I was fortunate just to have a team who was just great anyway, but I think that it helps to be educated in your condition is sad to me that we have to uh, we go to our doctors for them to tell us what is wrong i feel like to be respected sometimes we have to show up telling them what is wrong we have to come with some facts and some you know notes about what we think it is we kind of have to research upon our own condition it's unfortunate but i have found um that i've been more respected when i show up and say this is what is wrong like even when i um i went in for the um, incision check. I did see my doctor that day in the office. She was the one that sent a note and was like, I need you to go across the street. Go straight across the street. Don't eat anything. Don't drink anything. You you got to go to the emergency room and I'm going to let them know you're coming. I walked across the street and um, mind you, my husband didn't even get to park the car. Um, my hospital is in downtown Washington, D.C., very close to the White House. It's a very busy area. So he's riding around trying to find parking they checked my blood pressure in the triage and automatically was like, mm, 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 stop, nope, something's wrong. Let me go get your doctor. So I was already calling him 
and walking to the hospital before he could even get out the car. And um, by the time I got in there, I guess there was a lag or maybe someone didn't see the note because when I went to check in, I was like, hey, you know, my doctor sent me here, blah, 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 blah. She's like, I don't see anything. Have a seat. And I was like, okay. And I sat for about 15 minutes. And then finally she calls me back up. And she's like, okay, what did you say was going on? I was like, I had an incision check. You know, they said my blood pressure was elevated. I'm having to explain the whole story all over again. She's strapping it on my arm. And she's like, oh, yeah, your blood pressure is high. Okay, have a seat. And I sat for about 30 minutes. And then finally... My phone rings. It's my doctor. She's like, hey, my team said you didn't show up. What's going on? I was like, no, I'm sitting in the lobby. She's like, you're sitting in the lobby? I was like, yeah, I went up. I told him you left a note. She's like, okay, hold on. Gets on the phone with me. Apparently, she calls the triage station. The triage person automatically somehow sees the note, runs over to me, and is like, I'm so sorry. Come on, let's take you in the back. Wait a minute. I told you, my doctor. I told you what was going on. You saw... Then this person took my blood pressure. You sat me out here. But because the doctor put a note in, now all of a sudden I'm urgent. What's different? Yeah, nothing. Nothing's different. What what is what's different? So um that was a little that was a little off putting um to me. But thankfully from the time I got in the bag, I was admitted back to L and D within an hour. It was really quick. They rushed me right upstairs because they knew at this point. When she goes down, she goes down quick. Um, and my blood pressure at that point was back up in like the 200. So yeah. they they weren't taking any chances. Um, they just rushed me upstairs. But it's just unfortunate um, that it had to be that way. So now when I approach doctors, when I approach any healthcare professional in my mind, I'm already, I'm already in defense um, mentally. I'm, I won't say it physically, but I mean, I won't say it verbally, but in my mind, I'm like, oh God, is this going to be the day where I'm going to have to really explain myself? It's almost as if you have to become the bias. You have to, you have to become the image that they, they say you are to be respected. You almost have to be aggressive to even be believed or heard. It's almost like they want you to perpetuate the, 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 the standard of, of what they say you are. Um, it's unfortunate. That it it, it feels way. kind of backwards, right? Like very. But what the one thing that I really agree with what you said is I think it really helps when you are educated about what is happening to you, um, and can provide a description of that in a in an educated way. And and I see that for more than just um, black pregnant moms, right? So I see that with my dad who had polio who's got lung disease and who now has all these specialists. And when I give my parents a script and say, this is what you need to say, the appointment goes so much smoother because they're, they listen to him. He says it in a way that physicians are used to hearing it Uh and they seem to listen more. Um, And I'm not saying that that's good but it certainly has been a way that I can advocate for my dad to get really good care by translating yeah. and getting and helping that communication with the with the physician. And it just shouldn't be that way. It no. shouldn't have to be that way. You know, we're coming to you. And it's even like that with my daughter, Rain. I can't tell you how many times I've walked in and told them what was wrong with my daughter. 
I had to fight so hard for so, I felt like every step of the way in, in her condition, I had to fight for the oxygen. I had to fight to, to get the home nurse. I've had to fight for all of it. And I'm just like, come on, you guys, this is a 26 weeker. Why am I having to tell you, you know, why this could be happening or that could be happening? It, it just comes with the territory, unfortunately. And I'm, I'm glad that it happened to me first so that I could have that knowledge and I could walk in and say, this is what's going on. This is what I see. She's retracting. This is in this da 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 da. So that she is not collateral damage of their bias. That was my greatest fear. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. So let's uh, talk a little bit about what uh, medical complications she had after she came home. Because you know, her NICU stay was pretty uncomplicated, but then you just mentioned you've had to do quite a bit of advocating for her since the time she came home. So what happened after she came home? So about two months, she'd been home for about two months in the NICU and she woke up with, um, just sounded really congested. And I noticed that she was retracting, which I'd seen in the, in the NICU. And I was like, Hmm, what's going on here? So I tried some different things. I tried to use the, um, what is that thing? The nose Frida. I tried to suck out all the gunk and just nothing was hitting it. So I said, okay, let's go ahead and take it to the emergency room. Took it to the emergency room. Little did I know her oxygen was like in the low 70s. Um, she just was not in a good way. She was breathing really fast, like 60 something times a minute. Long story short, she ended up getting admitted uh, for croup. While we were there, um, about her fourth day there, she tested positive for RSV. Um, but it was, I mean, according to them, a fairly mild case, which would turn out to be true. Um, so she was admitted for those days. We went home. Everything was great. She got back to herself. Um, had a few medications. Had to see a primary care doctor. But that was it. Nothing else too radical. Two months later, she has an incident where um, she's sitting in her little bouncy chair thing. And um, I noticed her, like, she looked up at me and her lips, all around her lips were blue. And I was like, wait a minute, am I tripping? So I cut the light on and I picked her up and all of this is blue. And she's, like, breathing really heavy and she's just, like, staring off at me. So call 911, rush to the hospital. They do all these tests and couldn't really find anything. Her she her lips were kind of unblued by that point. They couldn't really find anything. But they admitted this anyway. They did scans of her heart. They did all a whole bunch of stuff. Um, sent us home um, with a referral to a cardiologist. Went back in. They did some tests and um, gosh, it's escaping me right now. So it's pulmonary cyanotic heart disease. That's what they said she had. Okay. okay. So one of the, the valves was basically flopping and the unoxygenated blood was getting through. So um, there was really no cause or cure for that. There was really nothing they could do. She had like mm, two or three more of those episodes and they would get me to try to get it on video. Um, what we found out is when it happened, her oxygen level really wasn't dropping um, drastically in, in like the mid eighties, but nothing too drastic. There was really nothing. I mean, they said there were surgeries that could be done, but they didn't feel that it was that drastic. While we're in the midst of dealing with that, uh, that's in November, a month later, 
I catch a cold or what I think is a cold. Um, I'm doing my best to stay at home. I'm doing my best to kind of still keep some distance. I really wasn't holding her. I was kind of letting her sit in her chair and eat her bite. You know, all the things we do to kind of make distance, but she still ended up getting sick. And, um, it was like mild cold symptoms at first, nothing too crazy. It was the week before Christmas and I had this feeling in my gut, like, man, she's not going to be able to celebrate her first Christmas. And lo and behold, that turned out to be true. Um, we t I took her to the emergency room um, about three days before Christmas. Um, she was retracting. She was congested. Took her in. They did scans. Doctor said, oh, she has um, bronchitis. We send her home with this, 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 this. She can manage at home. I'm like, yes, great, perfect. We can go home. She's not getting better. She's not eating. She's so winded. She's not taking her bottle. And I noticed that that blueness is coming back. But this time, I know her oxygen has to be dropping. I could tell by the way she's breathing. Rushed her back to the hospital. Her oxygen rate was 71. She had a fever of 105. Um, sick. Very sick. She immediately went right on BiPAP. And they called. We have like a satellite ER. Um, there's no admitting in that hospital, so they call an ambulance to basically transport us across town. They call for the ambulance immediately. It's like an ICU on wheels, basically, to take her across. So we rushed from one ambulance to another, um, and there we found out she had bronchitis, she had pneumonia, and she had RSV. Triple whammy. So we spent her first Christmas in the PICU. Oh, that's terrible devastating it was devastating i cried for like 40 straight i was just so hurt i could not believe it we had so many plans and we just had a big hoopla for her she's the first grandchild she's the first everything so everybody was so excited and matching the christmas outfits you name it we went all out so i was really really hurt but um our hospital did the best they could to make christmas amazing for us in the picu which i'm so grateful for um but during that visit one of the x-rays that they got um, on her last day there showed like some spots that at first the radiologist was like, oh, this could be the pneumonia, but it, it's in different places than what it was on the first scan. So they had this come back in two weeks after she was discharged to do another scan. By this time, the spots were larger and there were also some new ones. So then they sent us in for a CT and then um, I got a call from the pulmonologist saying that he wanted to do a biopsy. He had a hunch and he was like, I just want you to trust me. I think I know what's going on here. So I was like, whatever, you, I trust you. Go ahead, do what you got to do. Um, so we take her in for a biopsy two days after her first birthday. And um, two to three weeks later, we found out that she has pulmonary fibromas. So fibromas are basically, when you hear fibroma, you think fibroid, basically those like muscular, you know, kind of tumors. That's basically what she has all over her right lung. Um, they are outside, they are inside. Um, the ones on the outside are much larger. The largest one in diameter is like 4.7 inches, which is pretty big on the, the at that time, one year old. Uh, we could see it like if she would um, start retracting, we could kind of see see it bulging out of her side. So at first, um, he was like, you know, I really feel like the steroids are contributing to this. She went home from that last one with a nebulizer on, you know, oral steroids as well as brief steroids and albuterol. 
So he's like, I want you to hold the steroids. But when we held the steroids, we noticed that she wasn't doing as well. So he's like, okay, I got to put you back on the budesonide, but I don't feel so good about it. But let's do it and let's just keep doing scans. So he kept doing scans and we realized they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. She got to the point where any little bug and it felt like every time we went to the hospital, she was getting sick. Like the next day she had a fever, she had a cough, she had a runny nose. Now we're back to retracting. Now we're back to, to low oxygen levels. So we ended up going on oxygen. Um, 24-7 oxygen and it was just in time because she had another incident where her lung collapsed. Um, so we were really on 24-7 oxygen at that point. So she came home on one liter of oxygen, oxygen 24-7. Um, she did get to the point where she was able to wean um, back a bit to like half and then we got to like three-fourths and then she got pneumonia. Um this is about three months into her having oxygen she was about 16 16 months old um had a lung collapse so the chest tube the whole nine um back in the picu for four days at least you said for four or five days and um the doctor told me then we've got to do something um we, we got to attack these by this point, I think he said she was at like 81% coverage of her lung. And he's like, I could go in and do surgery. I could remove the largest ones, but I'm so afraid we're not going to have enough viable lung tissue at this point. So he's like, I want to try something radical. And I just, I need you to trust me. Let me talk to some colleagues. Let me get some second opinions for you so I can kind of save you the trouble of, you know, going through your insurance and whatever. So he got a second opinion from um, some hospital in Chicago and also John Hopkins. So there is a, there was a trial going on that was basically trying radiation therapy to attack these tumors. Much like um, when you have uterine fibroids, I forgot what it's called, but there's like a laser treatment basically that they do like non-invasive. So radiation was basically that, that thing. So we began radiation. Uh, we started radiation this February. Uh, we only got, let me see, five sessions in. We got one session in and she did fine. The second session, she got radiation pneumonia. So we had about a three week wait kind of for her to get better. We got the okay. We went back in and then the pandemic hit. So uh, we kept her home. It was our choice to keep her home. Um, and we were expecting, you know, oh gosh, she's home. We're not having, we're not treating them. They're probably growing. I am pleased to announce that my daughter has not been on oxygen in about two months. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, no, no cold. Well, no, she has had like runny nose, but uh, we got some allergy medicine because we kind of thought it was like seasonal allergy. So that kind of helped as well. She does have bouts where we have to tell her to like slow down. She's just running full speed. We have to slow her down so we can tell she's, you know, working pretty hard. But she's done very, very well. Um, we do know that this is, we, we have to come out of this safe place. We're going to have to go back and we're going to have to start again. Um, we're actually looking at doing that very soon. So next week she has an x-ray to kind of see where we are um, in terms of progress. But I'm going to be very shocked if they've grown because she's just not reflecting that. Right. Um, we're still checking her. We're still checking the pulse socks. And I've not seen her below like 93. So, so why do they think? why do they think she developed them? Well, one theory was the chest tubes. 
So he likened it to, you know, like keloid tumors. You know, some people get cut and there's a response. He kind of likened it to that um, because now at this point she's had three chest mm-hmm. tubes. So he kind of likened it to that. He wasn't quite sure. Um, he couldn't really find anything else. He set some other genetic markers off and nothing really came back um even for um gosh what is that like neurofibromatosis no it's another um gosh it's on the tip of my tongue it's not coming to me but there's another condition he sent off where he sent off all kinds of stuff scleroderma he asked all kinds of questions yeah of these different diseases and um we couldn't find anything oh um pulmonary fibrosis yeah it, that like, was the other yeah, question pul- but it's interesting so that's what my dad has is pulmonary fibrosis oh, wow. um and but that tends to be less like fibroid growths mm. and more just like scarring of the lung itself like the lung tissue um but it's not a typical ex preemie um, complication, right? Like, so yeah, Mm -hmm. preemies can have BPD, which is the same as chronic lung disease, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, but that's different than having these growths that you end up going after with radiation. So I mean, we, I I like the theory that there was some trauma that was caused by the chest tube that caused her to have this overgrowth of scarring. I think that's a great theory. Um, and I I don't know that you'll ever find out, but I was just curious, um, Mm -hmm. where they were coming from. Okay. Yeah, so. Well, it sounds like she's doing just fantastic. She is. She is. So I, uh, as we kind of are wrapping up, um, I really wanted to ask you about March of Dimes and then do my rapid fire 10 questions. So okay. tell me about your involvement with the March of Dimes. How did you get involved and um, how are you liking being involved and what are your goals for those projects? Okay, so Rain was about, I think we were home from the NICU for maybe six months. And um, our audience on Instagram was rapidly growing. Our page started off as just a page for our family who lives far away to keep up with her NICU journey. And before I realized it, people were finding us by our hashtags. Other 26 speakers were reaching out. People who had just had their babies of either success stories. And it just grew and grew and grew and grew. So, um... I just started wondering, like, okay, I'm sharing my story here. How could I share my story on, like, a broader um, spectrum where I could help people, you know, who are maybe sitting in the NICU with their babies and, you know, they just don't know or they know they're going to have their baby early and they want to know what the outcomes are. So I went on the March of Dimes website. I kind of looked up to try to see, like, what they were doing in my area besides the yearly walk. And I didn't really see anything, so... I went to the contact us and I just filled it out and was like, Hey, you know, I'm a 26 speaker. I want to know how I can be more involved in my area. Um, because I don't really see anything, you know, I would love to be able to, you know, share my story, help other moms. Someone got right back to me. Um, and it just so happened that this, this lady and I had our babies on the same day in the same hospital. Oh, no way. Mm-hmm. which is how I knew it was fate. I knew it was fate that we were connected. Um, hello, Kate, because I'm sure you're going to listen. Um, <laughs> she's one of our great followers on Instagram. So Kate reached back out to me. She was like, hi, you know, da, da, da. We had a program for ambassadors and, you know, it kind of diminished. We're trying to get it working back up. I think you'd be great for that. 
so maybe a month or so later, she had me come to, um, they were fundraising for the walk. They had me come out and share my story, um, at this corporation. And I got to do that like a few more times and a few more times. And, um, we got to share with like corporate sponsors like Gerber and, um, the different fraternities, all of the people who become sponsors for the walk, basically we get chances to, to share our story. So because, and I didn't know, my birth story is so rare. It's like, I mean, preclamps is not rare, but the way that everything happened to me is apparently not that common. Um, they thought that I would be perfect for the It's Not Fine campaign. So I knew what the campaign was. I thought I was just going to be sharing my story. I had no idea initially that my daughter and I would be a part of the commercial and the print ads, which was amazing um amazing to do so um rain is not in the commercial but she is in all of the print ads the print ads are basically surrounding her um, about one in ten babies being born premature so that has been beautiful um to be a part of of march of dimes and to be a part of um legislating policies that will help you know give access to other moms that will give care to other babies you just don't realize the access you just think everybody has access to health care like you just think everybody has insurance and everybody can get to the doctor and it's just not the case um in so many areas i mean i'm in such a, a city area to me it's like well, it's a hospital everywhere not the case with everyone so to be able to see that um to learn the statistics that, you know, black women are three to four times more to die. There's like 40 deaths per 100,000 births. Um, it, it was just amazing. And I just knew I had to, I had to do more. So being a part of the council, being able to help with that, um, being able to champion behind um, our fearless president, Stacey Stewart, um, and just support everything that she's doing. Um, and Marcia Dimes is doing has been beautiful. Um, the women who have reached out to me from all over the world um, has been amazing, amazing. Um, they tell their stories. My phone is going off day and night, which is why I knew I had to start a website. So we premiered um, our website, AnnsheeShawRain.com, on Rain's second birthday. Um, it went live um, where I started the blog and put up a ton of resources so, you know, moms can have the answers that I didn't have. So that's really what all of my work has been, just trying to be the answer I didn't have when I was sitting in the NICU. So oh, it's I been amazing. I think it's fantastic. I think that's probably one of the biggest drivers behind ex-preemie moms wanting to share their information. You know, the NICU is kind of this microcosm. There's no there's no world that's exactly like it. And when you're in the mm -hmm. NICU, it can be very scary and very isolating. But yeah. but I think more people are using social media and more people are following March of Dimes and more people are reaching out to ex-preemie moms to have some type of connection that kind of gives you that hope and courage and um, that empathy that you need to walk into the NICU one more day and fight for one more day mm -hmm. and not feel like you're so alone. 
Yeah, it's a very lonely place and people don't realize it. Like I I mean, I was that mom that was trying to like befriend every mom in there. So I'm like, "Hey girl, hey, how you doing? Tell me about your baby." Like, cuz I feel weird in here. So, you know, I kind of connected, which is how some of us have stayed connected. Um, yeah. that our babies are, you know, they're two now. Um, but we stayed connected cuz we just we didn't have anybody else in our families who had the I mean, one in 10, it sounds very common, but in that the statistic is not set for just micro preemies. Preemie is born before 36 weeks. In our world, that's almost full. That's basically full term to us. Right. Somebody says I have a 36 week preemie. I'm like, God, yeah, that's not a preemie. Yeah, technically it's a preemie. And and for some of those parents, the 34, 35, 36 weekers, some of those emotions are the same as mm-hmm. the 24, 25, 26 weekers. No, you don't get to follow your birth plan. No, you don't get to take your baby home when you leave the hospital. Right. No, right. you don't get to do all the normal parenting things that you want to do with your newborn. So a lot of that grief is the same. Mm-hmm. But but I think that there's an additional level that goes on top of that when you have a micropremie that is more related to the absolute time that you are in the NICU and related to the level of uncertainty that happens mm-hmm. with those smaller babies. The bigger babies, it's, it's um, for the parents, they feel that loss, but the outcome is so good that mm-hmm. it's a matter of time, and then you take your baby home. And right. for the micropremies, there's so much uncertainty in those first couple of months yeah. that you don't have that that same feeling um yeah when they're born we don't know if they're coming home yeah exactly we we don't know you know we have that honeymoon period like we we got to go through getting them to breathe and getting them off oxygen and then they have to feed where you know those babies they don't i mean of course some of them do have respiratory you know complications there are other conditions that you know cause them to be there but you know, the experiences are, the emotions can be the same, but the experience is different, I guess right. is the way to put it. So, yeah. but you know, I, and having those, we in the NICU, we called them big babies when they would come and we're like, oh, big baby, big baby will be gone in two days. Oh, big baby will be gone in a week. Um, and they were really fast turnarounds too. I don't think we saw any of the larger babies stay more than like a day or two. Um, but it just felt like we were, we were watching all of them come in go come go come go and it's so lonely when you're sitting there I mean we went through seasons my daughter was born and there was snow on the ground and when we left it was 90 something degrees yeah we literally went from winter spring to summer and it's just you just watch time change you watch staff changes you watch hospital construction go on you're just like man I am part of this place like this is my home yeah. The Starbucks staff downstairs knows my name and my drink. <laughs> I live here, yeah. you know. Yeah. But that's that's one of the reasons that I wanted to do the podcast is because moms do live in the NICU, right? And you're spending, you know, once your baby is stable enough, you can just snuggle with your baby and you have this nice three hour window where you're just hanging out and you could listen to some stories about NICU and about parenting that gives you hope um, for how things are going to go for you as well, because you get to go home too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Should we do the rapid fire? Sure. What is the first thing you thought when you saw rain? Wow. That's a lot of hair. And while she's really small. That's awesome. What is your absolute favorite NICU moment? Feeding her her first bottle. What is the best thing that somebody did for you while you were in the NICU? Give me a $50 Starbucks gift card. 
Nice. Yes, because you need some caffeine. Yeah, you're living on Starbucks. And that Starbucks was 24 hours. Thank God. I was there in the NICU probably about 12 hours a day. So I think I had like three cups a day. Uh Um, Not so healthy, but it's what we did. So, yeah. No, but it was your it was your treat. It was it was your stress relief. It's mm-hmm. you got a chance to walk out of the unit, walk down to the Starbucks, have your little drink, and come back. Yep, that and Whole Foods. I think I got a Whole Foods gift card too. So yeah, that was great. Great. Uh, what is the craziest parenting advice anybody's ever given you? Um, don't guard your child. Expose expose them to germs because it builds their immune system. Okay, I could see how somebody would recommend that but might not have been the best advice for your baby. That's what I had to explain. I had a lot of advice coming at me and I'm like, you've never raised a one pound baby. Your advice is not going to, it's not going to work. I always tell parents, this is a slight diversion from the questions, but I always tell parents that parenting advice, I just, it's like, you know, you just let it come in and then you're like, okay, yeah, it's just sitting there. I know. And now it becomes in my arsenal of things that I can, remember as I'm moving forward and I'm sure that the person who said that to you was thinking about peanut allergies and allergies in general and how if we're overprotective of our kids they're more likely to be these atopic allergic kids and that's all well and good but but one your baby was premature two your baby has lung disease and three, you're the mom, you get to choose. So you just let the information come in and the good advice mm-hmm. sticks and the bad advice bounces off you. You just let it go. If your best friend had a baby in the NICU today, what would you bring her? I would bring her a journal. I would bring her a gift card. And I would probably bring her an extension cord because plugs were few and far between. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, what was Rain's first word? Dada. Of course. Of course. Of course. It always it always is, right? Yeah. Um, what is a parenting event? A parenting event that you went through and you did something as a parent that you were like, "Oh my gosh, I'm a horrible parent. This is the end of the world." To then the next day realize, "Oh, this is just normal parenting. Everybody does this." So my husband and I, uh, she was on a medication and we didn't realize we both gave it to her. So I was up Googling all night like, oh God, oh God, I'm going to kill my baby. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, this is not good. This is not good. It was something like um, azithromycin or something. So she just got a double dose of it. But I was like freaking out. I called poison control. I left a message for the doctor. I, I felt so ter- She was fine. Absolutely fine. Yep. That's, I think that's a common one. So when my kids end up on medicine, I like take a Sharpie and write on the, most of the time it's antibiotics for whatever. Um, and I'll write, like my, draw lines on the back of the bottle with the day. And then I'll check them off as we give them. Because, you know, if I'm on a 24-hour shift and then I come home and my husband left for work, I don't, like, did you give that dose? Did you not give that dose? Mm-hmm. Was I supposed to give it when I got home? You know, and we've doubled up a time or two. So now we just mark it on the bottle. It's normally me, but that day my husband was trying to be helpful. Yeah. Uh, which was awesome, but I didn't know. So, right. Yeah. 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 Um, what is your favorite holiday to celebrate with rain? I'm going to say Christmas. Um, we didn't get to celebrate her first one, but this second one she just had 
was pretty awesome. That's good. So. Yeah. We, we do Christmas big in my house. We do a little bit different um, than a lot of people, but Christmas is like a whole month celebration for us about mm-hmm. kindness and giving and there's lots of, we have a kindness elf that comes and um, leaves the kids projects to take. Anyway, I'll be putting more about it on uh, Mighty Littles. I can't wait as to we do get that. to that. It, I waited for my kids and I remember the, to, to be a little bit older when we started it. And I remember the first time Emmeline brought cookies to the fire station and the police station on Christmas Eve. And she was two, two and a half, and she had these big sunglasses on, and she was all wrapped up, and she was just so excited to bring them these gifts. And for me, that's what Christmas is about, is the excitement yeah. of giving to somebody else who's done something mm-hmm. special. Here we are to the question that you've been dreading since we started. Okay. You're three or more or less favorite accounts to follow on Instagram that helped you with your surviving your NICU journey or your preemie journey or have taught you something since you've left? Okay. Um, my, there was only one page that I really knew of. I, I didn't really know about many preemie accounts while I was there. I kind of discovered them like our last week there, but there was one account. Um, her name is at beauty is Carrie M. Um, she's actually how I first even heard of a March of Dimes ambassador. Her daughter, Jim, was a 26-speaker. She has since just had another preemie. I think she had him at like 29 or 30 weeks, and Jim was like 26. So she's a like real rock star in my eyes. Um, since then, there's a page that I've been kind of helping them get some publicity. Um, it's basically showing um, or showcasing 22-weekers um, as, you know, now is kind of the... I won't say it's not quite yet the standard of viability, but they are working to do that. That page is called 22 Matters. Oh, yeah. Um, 22 Matters is, well, is my and, page. Yeah, and 20, 22 is the new 24. So like 10, 15 years ago when, okay, well, it's longer than that now, 15, 20 years ago when I was going through med school, um, 24 weekers were that kind of edge of viability and parents had an option do you want to go for it or are, do the risks feel too big to you? And that's a personal decision. No judgments from this podcast at all. Um, and now 24 weeks, the outcomes are good enough that many, I won't say most, but many neonatologists feel uncomfortable not resuscitating at 24 weeks. And that's okay. very, very different. And so kind of 23 has become much more common and 22 Mm -hmm. is the new 24 right where you know some people are uncomfortable at 22 other people really want to resuscitate at 22 and it it really is a personal choice for the family because the outcomes are so uncertain and the mortality is so high um but if we don't resuscitate 22 weekers then they have no chance of survival. And how do you know your dates aren't off by a week and that your baby isn't really, right. instead of 22 and 5, 23 and 5? Well, those babies do a little better. Mm-hmm. But the same can be true. How do you know your 22-weeker isn't 21 weeks? And right. that things won't fall apart in the first couple of hours after birth. And you don't. But you can always redirect and say actually your baby is so much less mature and all of these bad things have happened. Now we have a, 
now we have another conversation. But I, mm-hmm. I agree, 20, 22 is the new 24. So that one was called 22 Matters. Mm-hmm. Like 22 t- matters. 2 2 or 22? Oh, no, spell it out. 23. Okay. Yep, okay. 23 matters. Um, they're amazing. They actually compiled a list of all of the hospitals in the United States and even abroad that will and have resuscitated 22 weekers. And you'd be very surprised. It is not common. They also share stories of hospitals that have refused care and some of those babies lived for hours both both of those are true I actually know about 22 matters because I'm going to be doing I'm doing a podcast about the limit of viability and you know I think a lot of people want information about what happens if I'm 21 22 23 24 and when can I stop worrying quite as much right and that's when you're 27 to 30 those outcomes are actually really pretty good so I have a whole episode that's going to be about um, that that limit of viability and resuscitation around that age and as I was doing research for that um, podcast I came across 22 matters Mm. and so out of curiosity I went and looked at the page just to see uh, what's on there and, and my hospital is on there um, awesome so it's not you know I mean it's definitely th- those are hard ages um, but but we are on there so yeah that's awesome I let them take over my blog for a week just because I wanted people to know so I shared their stories and highlighted 22 weekers I'm actually getting ready for a 23 weekers week next week uh, where I'm going to be sharing all their stories so Oh, awesome. I'll have to um, share your posts about it and point things, point people to that in my podcast. I haven't recorded it yet in my podcast episode that is going to be about the limits of viability. Awesome. I love that. All right. And then one more. Um, let me see. That was one, two. Um, right now, I'm going to say Miracle Marley. Okay. Um, she is such a sweetie. Um, Marley is, um, she's a hydro warrior. Um, she's a, a CP warrior. Her page is just, my, my, her mom and I have just, um, so clicked and connected. Um, if I can sneak one more in, I want to give Kaz Cares my love to you. I got to return the favor. Um, cause I, I actually, I really love her. I love her and Kaz. So my number 10 question was, if you could tell yourself, something two years ago something you learned through this that you know now what would you go back and tell yourself I believe that God does his best work in the NICU um and miracles are messy and so are your emotions while you're going through it so um to be gracious with yourself and uh be patient because it is unmarked territory you won't get it right every day you won't do right by yourself every day sometimes you're gonna neglect yourself sometimes you're gonna neglect family and friends and you're gonna be so locked in on the journey um that it'll feel like your outside life is falling apart um when in fact i learned that it it really the NICU journey just made it all come together it healed relationships it brought people closer um certainly brought my husband and i closer and it just made us all over just better human beings um so yeah be gracious miracles are messy your emotions will be too so forgive yourself in advance yeah I'm gonna steal that miracles are messy I think that's very true and then final question what are you grateful for today I am grateful that 
the journey um, that at the time felt so unfair um, has become my reason. Um, it felt like a forsaken cause, like, oh, we, why us? Why us? Why us? Why us? And now I'm like, why not us? Why not us? We were built for this. Like, this is what we were supposed to be doing. And had it not happened, I would not um, have this long list of peer mentors that I have right now, people who I'm mentoring through the NICU. There would be no website. There would be no page. There would be no work with March of Dimes. And there would be no miracle to tell people that the impossible, what seems impossible, can happen. Infertility is not insurmountable. Um, there is no loss that you cannot heal from. Um, there's no journey that you cannot get through. Um, you're, you're just destined to do so. One of my um, quotes that I, so I do a vision board every year. And one of the quotes I put on my vision board this year was sometimes your biggest failures or your biggest struggles can become your strongest power. And I mm. put that on there because in starting Mighty Littles and in doing the podcast, I have ended up telling some stories about my husband and I's journey with infertility and miscarriage and um, feeling very vulnerable and being very scared and failing as a mom um, and failing at breastfeeding. And those were like these huge struggles for me that were so hard. And they have become my biggest power. They have brought light to issues that are really important to me and have made it so that I want to do more of these podcasts. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I like, I like, I like your, your, your statement. I've really enjoyed talking to you for this last uh, little bit under two hours, I guess, which doesn't feel like it's been two hours. It doesn't. I, I just really have enjoyed talking to you, and I uh, appreciate you being willing to share your story and being willing to talk about some hard topics with me. Oh, of course. Thank you for having me. It's I love sharing. I love it. If it can be somebody else's light and answer, I'm more than willing so I'm an open book. There is anything you can't ask me. Um, if it saves a life, if it saves a relationship, I, I'll tell it. My husband's the same way. Like, we'll, we'll put it all out. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And do you guys have any plans? You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.